Welcome to Disney Animation Minute Essentials, where we are submerging in Disney's The Little Mermaid one minute at a time. I'm Andrew Dorowski. And I'm Kestra Dorowski. And today we are joined again by Brad from the Cosmic Geppetto podcast, among other things. Hey guys, uh, really excited to be back. Uh, Glad you invited me back for another day. Had so much fun yesterday, uh, which isn't a surprise because I had a great time uh, with you guys for your last movie when uh, you guys were doing Snow White and uh, just uh, very, very excited to be back. Well, we're glad you're back. Uh, Today we are discussing Minute 12, which begins with the two round bulbs showing Ariel and Flounder merging together. And it ends with darkness uh, creeping up around Ursula as she says, she may be the king to Triton's undoing. Minute number 12 of The Little Mermaid features Ursula complaining about how she's wasted away to nothing since she left the palace. And Ursula telling Flotsam and Jetsam to keep watching Ariel. I'm having a, I'm having a hard time with some of the, my words today. <laughs> it's uh, okay. So this scene is one minute long like it cuts in and cuts out in in this minute it is so it's, nicely contained it's great I, I was really happy when i was going through our dvd and i was like oh this ends like perfectly i'm so excited i i've been listening to uh the completed uh jurassic park minute podcast and they talk about some sequences that are action sequences and involves some very close cutting back and forth, like 15-second cuts between action going on in different places to to ramp up the tension. And I, it, it made me think of this. It's like, this is one minute. And I don't think they could have made this scene any shorter, else it would have seemed weirdly short. And I, I think this is about as short as you could go to introduce the villain of the film. It's just this one minute. Because yeah. in Snow White, I mean, like the first two weeks were on the queen i think or or we were talking about the queen we were talking about she was the queen. a big focus she, early on and she was the beginning of the film yeah, whereas she, this is you know our, our third week and now we get a shot of the villain yeah. I, well, I, I don't think you queen. can do more than a minute of ursula she is so <laughs> such a big character and so overpowering and sort of as we alluded to yesterday um Hill actually is a pretty generic heroine uh, so it, she's already going to be overpowered by Ursula. So you you only need a minute of her to to to, to get where she's going. Yes, it, it is very easy to see very quickly. Like Ursula gives you everything you need. I mean, almost in the first 20 seconds of this, you get everything you really need to know to establish. OK, I get who Ursula is. And by the end of the minute, you kind of want to get away from her. You're like, OK, this is like she is the big villain. I mean, at the end of this minute, her tentacles are curling up around her and mm-hmm. like there's darkness submerging around her and just like starting to show her eyes. Yeah, just her eyes she are looks, left at the end. And then it's and then the music well, under this whole scene, there are parts of the score that sound very similar to her big song that we hear later, which is Poor Unfortunate Souls. Mm-hmm. And then right at the very end with the tentacles and and the darkness and everything 
there's just the, the strings playing one note. Yeah, um, like a sinister violin thing, which there's not a lot of strings throughout this film. We've talked a little bit about that already. They rely very heavily on, on horns and yes. um, brass and woodwinds uh, for, for the score. So, And they're just going, do, do, do on the same note. And it's just, mm-hmm. it, it kind of creates this tension and... And darkness. And darkness and and creepiness and yeah it makes you want to be like okay ursula get off screen now please bye <laughs> well and then uh, what is what are the creatures she's eating do we have like a, a, is, I think is it those, a I, i'm guessing they would be krill thank okay. you um, i said it's sort of sort of like sort of like shrimp but a little bit smaller and and i think krill don't necessarily have the hard shell that shrimp kind of have because that's what I was wondering too, and then they make this noise as well as like this like squirming, squealing. Okay, if we didn't, if we noise. needed nothing else to establish Ursula as the villain, like she eats a living creature that has eyes and is making sounds. Oh, it's and the eyes themselves—they're just these big, expressive eyes that convey like just fear and just yes, absolutely fear of what's going on. That's yeah. something I, I wanted to. Uh, I, I was thinking about asking you yesterday when we saw Ariel. Um, was this one of the earlier examples of a Disney movie where you had the oversized eyes on the characters? Where Ariel has some pretty big eyes, and I'd, I'd say this is one of the first ones for a, a strong trend of it. Um, Snow White certainly didn't have eyes that were unusually large. I wouldn't say that was the case for Cinderella or Sleeping Beauty either. No. Um, maybe some in Pinocchio. I think Geppetto's eyes might be a little unusually large, um, but not not to the degree that we get in uh, Tangled in, and in Frozen. Tangled, Frozen. Um, and, and probably through most of the Disney Renaissance, you're getting uh, the sort of um, change in shape. For the characters where they're a little a little less human, but at the same time, they still maintain a consistent form the whole time for the human characters. Uh, but they they lean into, you know, we'll make these eyes bigger. We'll make the the shoulders and wrists and waists a little thinner uh, and, and things like that, which is it, it's certainly still going now. Oh, yeah. It, Definitely. It, it's, it's not at a point where if you see Snow White... Yeah, with with the, like the normal size eyes, it looks weird. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know a lot of people. Uh, I, I saw a number of. I guess they were just blog posts, but maybe articles um, talking about with Frozen how big the the women's eyes were compared to their hands or their wrists, and and then the proportions compared to the men. Where it's like, well, the men don't have eyes that are that much bigger than their hands, but the women like their eye is the same size as their hand and that's not how human proportions work no it's it's uh, it's gonna get crazier and crazier and crazier until somebody's gonna some artist is gonna go in the other direction with it so it'll be interesting to see because these things often can go in cycles i think it must be an anime influence um, and I get the need for it because like we talk about with the krill, um, you, you feel, you, you do quickly realize like Ursula's bad. She's eating that krill, which, you know, in and of itself should it be a big eyes, So you have to have sympathy for it. <laughs> exactly. But also a lot of big eyes have, um, like been represented for, or symbol for innocence. And- yeah. I was going to say innocence in particular is, is something that big eyes are are used as a 
visual uh, note of indication. Uh, so they don't have to actually do any character work to establish it. If you have a character with big eyes, you interpret a certain amount of innocence. And I think a lot of that comes from the way kids are proportioned, where you you have these expressive eyes and not really a lot of other expressive features. Um, and And they grow into these eyes that they have. But when they're an infant, you almost all you can see sometimes is just these big eyes looking at you and wondering like what's going on. And it, it, it is this symbol of innocence. There's, um, there's actually been studies done about, you know, children are designed, babies are designed to, for us to love them because they're ho- so helpless, ho- so helpless. That's why we love like, because we, we've like, through evolution we've learned to like love creatures with like large eyes um and that's why we protect them and you know we don't want any harm to come with them and because of that we we are also the book i read talking about this we're also in the same way genetically predisposed to loving pandas because they have the big black patches around their eyes they look like they have huge eyes and it's like oh, i just want to hold that and, and so we them. want to protect them yeah I, I, I believe it. I also know there's been studies um, for what's called cute aggression, which is the impulse people get when they see like a cute baby to want to say things like, oh, I want to eat you up or they want to pinch cheeks or something. Uh, and, and so it's been termed cute aggression where people have this kind of visceral response to seeing something cute. And they think that it might be related to what you were describing, um, a protective impulse, but we have to kind of suppress that because there's not actually a danger um, at that moment. Like where we see a baby it, when someone's, you know, like showing us their newborn baby, we don't actually have to exercise a protective influence. And so it gets turned into this aggression that's just associated with the cuteness. And they, I, I know one of the studies, they, <laughs> they handed the test subjects bubble wrap. And told them to, you know, pop however much they wanted while they went through the test. And then they showed them uh, different images. And one test group got cute images and they popped like 20% more bubbles as they were looking at pictures of puppies and babies and kittens and stuff. And they said, it's like, we took this as a pretty distinctive sign that like there is some sort of like aggressive impulse that is associated with viewing something that we consider cute, which which is also coded for like weak and small and helpless, you know? And, and so they think maybe it's a protective urge. And so maybe that's what we're feeling as we see these big eyes on the krill and as they're being attacked is um, a desire to protect them. And, and that gets projected into them as being innocent. Makes me think of a couple of things. One with me freaking out every time I see a, a, a dog picture. Kestra <laughs> loves dogs and puppies. And so every time she sees one, she's like, Ugh! and she tenses up in <laughs> yes. a good way. And then also um, our, our we have some nieces and nephews and uh, two of our nephews have like these big eyes with these long eyelashes and they are so adorable and it make, like the first time I saw them I was like oh my goodness they are adorable <laughs> but, and you wanted to protect them yes exactly I, I remember uh, reminding me of my uh, my twins uh, Logan and London were born premature and uh, so so my daughter especially she has a really a striking blue eyes and because she's premature and she was undersized 
all she was was eyes when she was born. Just just, just big blue eyes, and she was also very aware. I remember one time being at uh, – we met my father who was in town uh, for that morning. We met him at like a friendlies. And we're eating, and we're going to pay for it. And this old lady, I'm holding London in my arms, looking at the young lady behind the cash register. And all of a sudden, this old lady just went face first and just started kissing my daughter's head. And I was like, whoa, do we do this? And she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I just can't stop myself. It's like, well, try your crazy well, do stop, yourself. stop yourself. Please, <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> but that's just a, a statement for all the listeners. If you feel that impulse, do in fact stop yourself, please. <laughs> Unless it's, of course, like your own child, then I guess you could be okay. Yeah, but um, also, if every person who listened to this, uh, just go to the damsels page and post the cutest picture of a puppy you can find just so Kestra has to open that link and, <laughs> and uh, explode from the cuteness. That would be so great. Well, I'm, I'm telling you what I'm going to do, Kestra. Right now, passed out by my feet is uh, our dog, Boomer, who's about nine months old. He's about he's a beautiful golden retriever. He's passed out at my feet. He is the official dog of the Cosmic Geppetto podcast. Because <laughs> yeah, he's usually like asleep at my feet while I'm recording, just breaking wind like crazy. <laughs> so I will post that so you'll get a chance to look at Boomer. He's pretty beautiful. Excellent. We love dogs, and we look forward to getting yeah. one someday. Uh, can't get one yet. We're not ready for it yet, but but one day we'll get one, and we hope we get one that's young at the time. Uh, we, we'll probably try to get a rescue, but maybe we can get one that still has uh, a little bit of its puppy time in it. Uh, so we can appreciate that, and then and then it can grow up and be responsible. <laughs> uh, okay, we've we've covered like the first ten seconds of, of this. It it is the introduction of Ursula. I think definitely one of the very best Disney villains. Yes, she just conveys all of her personality instantly from from eating this krill to her monologue. Like I'm wasting away, and she is. Uh, over dramatic? Yes, she's very over dramatic, especially about the wasting away because uh, she is not wasting away. She has a luxurious figure, and and she says practically starving, and I'm like, you just had a snack, like <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't think that's all you eat. I don't think all you eat is one krill, yeah, at a time. She okay, and then she talks about when I was at the palace. Is this the only? point in the film where she explains that she was part of the palace i know in in like the expanded universe we understand that she and triton are siblings and she was in the palace and then was banished in the broadway musical it says that um like the, like the kingdom or, or it, she and triton were siblings and and their father split their inheritance basically yes. so triton and, got the trident. The, the trident and, and, and the kingdom. And the kingdom. And she got the magic shell is what the musical says. Okay. Which is, I'm assuming, the shell. The, the shell that Vanessa wears later. Well, she's still, she's wearing it now. Is she? Yes. I didn't take note of it. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, she's wearing it now. But Ursula, I have some facts about her. All right, let's hear them. She, her character is based on the drag queen Divine. So this would be in the 80s. Yes. Um, and I guess this would have had to be a, a well-known drag queen in the 80s. Yes. 
And there are also some the, pers- the we'll say the RuPaul of their day. Uh, uh, you know what? Uh, uh, w- w- as soon as Kester is over this uh, or through this part of it, uh, I lived in Bal- I lived in Baltimore for a while. I'm a, still relatively local to ba- Baltimore. Divine was a huge presence in Baltimore. I I, I know Divine stuff. Okay. Well, she, she or he, I don't know how to express that in this case. Divine was the inspiration for Ursula. Like yes. the design is based on Divine. Yes. And some of her personality and actions were inspired from the rescuers, uh, Madame Medusa. Okay. So there's there's a particular moment in the scene, I believe, yeah, in the scene of Poor Unfortunate Souls um, that I will mention where where before I even researched this stuff, I was like, this that, is just like rescuers. That's like it, 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 it was her face and her movement and personality in like one little bit that I was like, that looks like Madame Medusa. And then I was like, oh, well, that there's a reason for that. OK. Uh, she her character was created for B. Arthur. Um who declined because of conflicts for uh, with uh, Golden Girls scheduling, and then there were several other people who were who had auditioned, and then were considered. Um, Elaine Stitch was then cast, but her as Ursula, but then her style clashed with Howard Ashman's style, ah. and so she was dropped from that, and then the, it went. Yeah, don't don't clash with your composer or lyricist <laughs> yes. when you're on a Disney film. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so then it went to Pat Carroll, who is the voice of Ursula. So we have Pat Carroll to thank for the vocal performance in play here. And Pat Carroll has said that it had it was a dream come true because she always wanted to voice a Disney character. Well, she pours every bit of that into this. Like <laughs> this character is dripping with personality yes i just uh, watched uh, an, uh, an episode of 30 rock a rerun of 30 rock where elaine stitch played um uh, jack donaghy's mom uh, alec baldwin's character's mom and she is wonderful she has this great sharp timing however she and i'm sure she would have been fine if they would have figured out a way but i don't see her particular persona of this just sharp-tongued um uh, cutting personality, and that was sort of the persona that Elaine Stitch had, as opposed to the the vampy style um, that Ursula has. And Packerel definitely nailed that on the spot. So, uh, as much as I'm a fan of Elaine Stitch, and she, she was an incredible f- performer, I don't, I, I just don't see her being able to bring this particular Ursula that we see to life. Yeah, and I think I think this Ursula is great. I can't imagine another version. Definitely. I Ur- I have a few notes. Okay. Uh she only has six tentacles. She's yes. not quite truly an octopus, but she has two arms. So she is a Cecilia. Or or Cecilia. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure as well. But it's a half octopus, half human. So not not a mermaid, but a Cassalia or Cecilia. Yes, however you would pronounce it. Uh, but because, yes, yeah, she has six tentacles. But so, two arms, so still eight limbs. So some people say because she has two arms, she is still a uh, half octopus. But other people say that because she has six tentacles, she is just squid. And But because, because of that, uh, the reason that they have 
six, that she has six tentacles is because it was a lot difficult, a lot more difficult to, to draw and animate eight, eight, of, ten, them. eight of them. The balance just was too much. And it was also a lot more expensive. Hmm. But Pat Carroll says that she is a squid. Oh, Pat Carroll went with squid. I still lean towards octopus personally. Me too. Um, it, it's how it's how I view her. Um, I did not do a lot of deep research into uh, Cassalia or or Cassalia, um, but apparently it is uh, a variety of succubus in mythology. So we're dealing with you know some some deep deep mythology. Yes. Uh, to build this character, which I had always thought that she was developed for this role. They said, what's a really sinister kind of fish? And let's make her half that. That's what I thought, too. Uh, but but it, there is a there is a, an ancient basis for it. Yeah. Originally, she was actually supposed to um, not be this kind of creature. Um, she was supposed to have other features, like a... With... Um, so qualities of a spine fish and a scorpion fish but then they didn't they the drawings that i saw didn't seem as great <laughs> okay i was gonna say as ursula as like ursula, this is this yes. is like she's so iconic uh so they they turned to this cecilia or cassalia um form and i think it's a lot better it's it's really great like they did such a good uh, creation, like the development of this character, is is fantastic. No, it's perfect. And uh, first off, I agree. She's totally an octopus. Uh, when I think of squids, first off, squids, I I, I don't imagine they, they never would stretch their arms out like to to be perfect. to the sides. Yeah, they don't stretch out to the sides. It's, it's always below them to to give them that sort of line look. And uh, mm -hmm. they can't be as Squids I don't find as creepy looking as octopus. Octopuses, when they spread out like that, and the tentacles all sort of going in different directions, uh, can have sort of an unnerving look to them, um, as opposed to squid, I, which just don't have the same heft to their look because it's usually a long stretched out creature. Um, I mean, I mean, I am I'm plenty afraid of squids, just as I am octopi. But I would say an octopus works better here. And we mentioned last week with our our guest uh mm -hmm. octopi and how scary they are yeah we had we had a they, whole discussion about octopi. what they can do and they are frightening i'd say more frightening than squids especially to people because squids do not climb up on land and octopi do they they are terrifying there are some stories that andrew told that i was like <laughs> i'm scared now sorry <laughs> Well, there was a not too long ago. We were at the Baltimore Aquarium with the kids, and they have one show, showcase uh, where they have an octopus. But you never see the octopus. You never see the octopus. And we walked by, and there's the octopus. And the kids are like, "Hey, Dad, look at the octopus!" And there I am, just taking steps back because that thing freaks me out. Ugh. I I I used to live in Northern Virginia, so I'd go to the Baltimore Aquarium all the time, and I I know what you're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I I love it. <laughs> My, so I, I I had one other question, and I think I guess yesterday our discussion of the magic of the eyes covers it. But she is having like this monologue to herself, and then she yells to Flotsam and Jetsam and scares them. They bump their heads, and I don't know how she's communicating to them. But I guess it's just covered in the magic of how their eyes are conveying uh, uh, imagery to her. I was going to ask that too because I I don't 
Not, like no. they, it, they, they do nothing about it. Like she doesn't speak to anything in particular. She just like says their names loudly, I mean, and she they turns somehow around, hear She it. turns around and looks at the orb that she's seeing. Yeah, but it, it doesn't really make sense to me how they would hear. But I don't know if her. I would. I don't know if I would prefer that she be. I, I didn't notice that until probably the third time we were watching uh, these minutes. But I, I don't think I would prefer if she like picked up a glowing rock and yelled at that rock. And it was like, oh, that's her magical communication device. But they jump. They hit one of yeah, them so hits it's, their it's head. Surprises so them. it surprises them. So I'm thinking that she, they, they didn't weren't hear, listening to they, her before. Yeah, that they didn't hear her before. But then they, she yells their names. Maybe that's the signal that. Or something like that. But uh, there's something definitely that's different when she says their names like, oh, now she's in communication with them before their, the, the walkie talkie wasn't on. Right. There's definitely some sort of, you know, psychic telecommunication going on. And, but I agree with you. It works better that way than I, I, Ursula is so powerful a character. I don't think you should have her like holding a telephone receiver and talking to them. Like give her as much freedom of movement as you can and don't encumber mm-hmm. her with other devices or props or stuff. Just let, you just got to really let Ursula move the way she is going to move. Yeah, and I I have no problem uh, thinking of her as having enough power to facilitate this communication just on her own. Oh, definitely. Like, I, I do not doubt her ability to do all these magical things. Right. Which is amazing because other characters, I mean, like Jafar, you have to see so much of his uh, his craft behind his his magic and performance. And Ursula, it's like, no, I, I require nothing <laughs> to believe that she is doing all of these things. And and they don't really give you anything to work from either. I, I guess during Poor Unfortunate Souls, she prepares a potion, you could say. But that's about it. And so in this sequence, it's like, I have no reason to understand why she's doing all this stuff. At the same time, I, I don't doubt that she's doing it herself. Right. No, the character conveys just so much power in the performance and in the design. It's like, yeah, she can do whatever she wants. Mm-hmm. I have a note about Flotsam and Jetsam. Okay, let's hear it. Their ne- names mean useless or disregarded objects. Yeah, so I I know it's a term. Uh, I, I remember specifically reading it in um, Lord of the Rings. It's like the name of a chapter after they flood Isengard. Uh, and there's just all this stuff that's floating around. And it's called the Flotsam and Jetsam uh, of of that flood that they caused. But also just in the ocean. It Like driftwood would be chunks of Flotsam and Jetsam. Right. Yeah. Well, it's funny. Are uh, they twins? Are they twin eels? I I don't know. Th- there's definitely a sibling attachment there. I I, I would believe yeah. so. Th- th- in the, yeah. the, in Disney movies, love to have the twin thing. You know, the the Siamese cats in Lady and the Tramp. They love the oh, you know, the twins. I bet these were influenced by the Siamese cats. Yeah. Well, I was gonna ask. Uh, have, have you read the Hans Christian Andersen version? I have a copy that I am going to be working through, but I haven't read through it yet. Okay. I'm not exactly sure how he describes the, the sea witch, um, in his version, but he, she doesn't have comrades like Flotsam and Jetsam, does she? I don't know. I, I will let you know when I read it more fully. Cause then it makes me think like... 
obviously, like almost every single, almost every single Disney film has had with the villain has I, had has at least one sidekick. At least one sidekick. Um, and that, that goes back to the the classic Disney stuff with even with Snow White, where she didn't have a, a, a speaking sidekick. There was the the Rook in her study. Um, yes. Who who was in a lot of scenes with uh, Lady Tremaine in Cinderella? She has the Lucifer, cat, the cat, mm-hmm. and and this sets a, a new precedent. I think we're having them really be sidekicks um, as opposed to just sort of presences. Maleficent just kind of has the crow that's with Diablo. her, and then Lady Tremaine just has this cat that's sort of there, but not a um, confidant, not in on the entire um, dastardly plot. And so this is this is starting starting a new precedent, which you get carried on with Iago for Jafar, and I would say LeFou for for Gaston, Gaston um, Pain and Panic for Hades in in Hercules, uh, all those sorts of characters. A, a good bad guy needs that sidekick, or else just to make the monologues work. Mm-hmm. You got to have someone you're talking to. I mean, Cruella Deville has Horace and and Jasper. Yeah. And- so, yeah, it definitely adds stuff to it, but I, I just, I, it makes me curious as to what brought on the this bringing of of evil sidekicks. I, I think they just wanted to. I mean, if the main character is going to have animal companions that are on her side, maybe they said like, let's throw something in for the villain so that the villain can have an influence that's equal. Uh, to those characters. Why do you think Flotsam and Jetsam are eels? Because eels are sinister and snake-like. It's it's the most <laughs> snake-like underwater option. Okay, that's what I was thinking, too. I just wanted to s- yeah. see if you had any other thoughts besides that. Um, and I, I'd say eels uh, convey the idea of a sea monster. Uh in in a in a sort of historical sense, if, if you're going to have an underwater creature that's a bad guy, you basically have octopus, but Ursula is already sort of an octopus. You can have a shark, but first off, eh, we already you, had the shark. You already have the one shark, and plus, you don't want to have too much shark because then you're just thinking Jaws. Um, mm-hmm. So that sort of leaves you with eel. Yeah, there's there's not too many options. I mean, you could get squids, but if you have an octopus, you don't want a squid. Uh, you can get gators, but they're not in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, gators doesn't work for. Yeah, gators working that far in the ocean, eh, it doesn't work. It, yeah, I mean, Medu- Madame Medusa already has. And you've already had a gator as a, as an animal sidekick for a villain in a Disney film, yes. so it, it was the eel's turn. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, makes I'd, sense. I'd say that's that. I'm all out of notes. As am I. Yeah, I'm tapped. That's all we have for you today. We are part of Dueling Genre. You can find us and many other podcasts at duelinggenre.com. There you will also find a link to a Patreon page where you can support all Dueling Dueling Genre productions. We are on Twitter and Instagram at DizMinute, which is D-I-S Minute, on email as DisneyAnimationMinute at gmail.com, and on Facebook at the Disney Animation Minute Secret Essential Listener Society or Damsels Group. Our guests can be found 
Uh, you can check us out at uh, CosmicGeppetto.com. Um, we have all the links. Uh, we're on Twitter at Cosmic underscore Geppetto. Also, uh, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. And also check out Minute of Darkness, where we talk about the classic uh, Sam Raimi film, uh, Army of Darkness. Uh, we completed our run. It's all there. Download all the episodes and uh, you know just, uh, just take a weekend and listen. Um, we had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, we have a lot of fun with Cosmic Geppetto Podcast podcast that comes out weekly and uh, gosh we've been doing that for about two years really fun show where we talk about movies music books comics um basically anything pop culture and fun we'll uh we'll talk about it and uh we we uh we have a great time and just like uh, i have a great time talking with you guys and i'm looking forward to coming back tomorrow yeah we're excited for you to come back sounds good you should definitely go check out those podcasts Until next time, thank you for making us part of your world.